You know, adventure is probably a word that's overused nowadays, to say the least. But it's not because it's a fad or the flavor of the week or, or anyone's trying to do anything to the word adventure. It's because humans crave adventure. We love the idea of it. Just the feeling you get when you hear the word. And we want to be associated with it. We want to have a taste of living an adventure. But nowadays, who has the time to devote years of planning and effort to that? Many of us have other commitments, and often the reality is you got to be back to work in just two weeks. So how do we manage adventure with our schedule? Well, today we're going to learn about some adventure routes in both Canada and the United States that could keep you busy for a day, a week, on up to three or four months if you can do that. And as for challenge, oh yeah, some of these routes should challenge even the hardiest of adventures. From the remote and wild lands of Labrador, the deep woods of Quebec and Ontario, the prairies, right on through to the mountains of British Columbia to the coast in Canada and in the U.S., Oregon, Washington, Arizona, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and Wyoming, there's miles and miles of incredible scenery and challenge ready for you to discover and explore. All you have to do is follow the route on your GPS. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Let's begin. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Greg W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
If you live in the U.S. or you're planning to go to the States for some riding, look no further than the Backcountry Discovery Routes. These mapped out routes have GPS tracks that are free to download, interactive maps, they've got packing lists, even promo videos for each route. And with all this and more pre-planned for you, it makes fitting a real adventure into your time slot a whole lot easier. My name is Paul Gillian. I'm the CEO of TourTech USA, and I'm also one of the volunteers and founding board members for Backcountry Discovery Routes, which is a nonprofit organization. Paul, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Great to be on. Backcountry Discovery Routes is now a well-established organization. How did it get started and how did you get involved? Yeah, Backcountry Discovery Routes as a concept predates me, but I'll kind of tell you a little bit of the history and then where I I came along. Uh, The original route concept was created by Bob and Cheryl Greenstreet. Uh, They had a a vision to create these sort of backcountry off-highway routes across states. Uh, They started with the state of Oregon, and their plan was to uh, ultimately have something that went from Canada to Mexico all in the backcountry. Uh, they actually had uh, received federal funding and uh, they went to town in Oregon, created a very cool route, uh, but it caught the attention of some some environmental groups that um, had uh, they were they had some misconceptions really about what it was and they were worried that it was going to create problems for wildlife and uh, and threaten the environment in some way. And so they fought it. Uh, there were a series of lawsuits and they ended up, uh, the remaining federal funding was used to pull out all of the in-ground markers. And it kind of went away uh, for the most part, other than there were some, some uh, a local Jeep club kind of took over it. It was the Oregon Off-Highway Vehicle Association. And they continued to produce these paper maps, which were basically like color photocopies of pages uh, and you could make a donation to their nonprofit and they would send you a big stack of basically color copies. And you'd have to try and figure out how to do the route from there. So uh, that was kind of the, the original BDR concept. Um, Tom Myers, who was one of the, the uh, owners of TourTech USA, he rode that route back in 99 or 2000 and uh, had a great time on it. He ended up doing a write-up on it. And this was kind of when the internet was just emerging for, for regular people. And so he wrote a review about his experience riding the Oregon backcountry discovery route. And it ended up just getting a ton of traction online. There were a lot of people that read his review. There wasn't much else really on it back then other than there's a, a real rudimentary website basically where you could send these guys some money and they'd send you color copies GPS tracks of it didn't really exist. And so uh, Tom had this write-up online. A lot of people read it. Um, not much really changed. And then fast forward to 2009, and I was new to TourTech. Uh, I was hired on as the general manager. And I had a lot of experience in the motorcycle industry, but I didn't have a lot of experience on uh, the adventure segment, adventure riding. And so to bring me up to speed, Tom had the great idea of he and I riding the Oregon backcountry discovery route together um, just for fun and to kind of learn the, the tour tech way. 
And uh, being a marketing guy, I thought, well, if we're going to go to the trouble to do that, let's bring a photographer and a video guy and let's create some some cool content and you know, share this experience with our customers. And so we did that. We brought uh, Helge Pedersen, who's the founder of Globe Riders. He was our photographer. And then we brought Sterling Noreen, who uh, these days is the head of Noreen Films. Back then, he was uh, an independent filmmaker that didn't have an official company name. And so we brought those two guys. We spent a week in the Oregon backcountry. Uh, we were filming, shooting photos. We never actually quite finished the route, but we spent about eight days out there and uh, made some videos. I wrote a story for Roadrunner magazine, and we just sort of started putting the content out there. And then some guys uh, from Seattle, a guy named Bryce Stevens and another gentleman named Andrew Call. They were a couple of just friends, but they were entrepreneurs from Seattle that saw that video we put out on Oregon, which was just kind of a YouTube short. And they thought, man, we really need a route like that in Washington. So they set out to create a, a BDR style route in Washington. Uh, they entered a contest with the, uh, the Overland Expo for best new um, expedition concept. And they, they won, uh, and they won, I think the, the award was $300 or something like that to put towards, uh, creating this new route. Uh, and they, you know, thought, well, it'd be cool to have a film. So of course they called Sterling, who was the guy that did the film work for us and, uh, said, Hey Sterling, you know, we want to create this route. Do you, you want to make a, a film about it? And Sterling said, yeah, no problem. You know, here's, here's how much money it's going to be. And they, course didn't have the uh, the money and so they they called Touratech and we went out to lunch and they said hey we're thinking about making a, a Washington style you know backcountry discovery route would you guys be interested in, in being involved and we said of course let's do it and so we uh, just you know Touratech signed up to to basically fund that first one the film and to do all the legwork to to make it happen with these guys and I think we were probably only halfway through the actual expedition on that when we were already thinking about what, what state would we do next, you know, and we just kept coming back to Utah because Utah was such an amazing state. Uh, you know, just the geography, a lot of us had mountain biked or rode dirt bikes down there and, uh, hiked and things like that. And so, um, before we were even done with Washington one, we had ideas to do Utah and then some, sometime between completing Washington and, and, and getting Utah, uh, done, we decided to make a nonprofit organization because we really wanted this whole BDR thing to be by the community for the community. Touratech, of course, has been a sponsor since the beginning, but we really wanted it to not be a Touratech thing, but to be a community thing. And, and of course, a lot of other companies um, helped support it early on uh, Climb, Nemo Tents, and um, Trailmaster Adventures and Butler Motorcycle Maps, and the, the list goes on and on. There's really a lot of companies that have been involved over the years, and almost every company that's come on board as a sponsor has stayed a, a sponsor to it because they all just really believe in the mission and think it's it's something cool. And and really um, for the nonprofit, you know, we're really about trying to create and preserve this form of recreation, riding dual sport motorcycles and adventure motorcycles out in the backcountry. We just think it's a really cool thing. Uh, it is really threatened. You know, we're losing a lot of riding areas uh, more and more every year. And so we, we believe it's a noble cause. Uh, our deliverable to the community every year is, you know, delivering a new BDR route. Um, but really, 
in between all those and while we're doing that, we're really just trying to uh, educate the user base about responsible travel in the backcountry. And we're trying to be an advocate for this user group and work with the land managers to um, make sure that they're serving this form of recreation and also making sure that we're all participating in this in ways that's uh, that's good, that won't close areas, that's uh, sustainable so that our kids someday can go out and ride backcountry discovery routes and get a real backcountry experience while they can. Well, how many routes are there now? We just finished Nevada, which was our seventh route. Is this all off-road or is it on-road? Is it a mixture? How do you do that? We try to, to make it as much off-road as possible. Um, we also try and make it the most interesting, low usage, high elevation, really away from from population centers. So sometimes to put together the best route, it does involve uh, some asphalt or even at times more asphalt than we would like. But when we do put in asphalt, it's usually because it's stringing together some real phenomenal dirt roads or some places that are really amazing to experience in the backcountry, and we just can't miss it. So it's uh, it's um, mostly off-road. Almost every route we've created is at least 70 to 80% off-road. Some of them have been as high as 90% off-road. But really, it's about getting away from population centers. So we try and, like, for example, in New Mexico, uh, we, we kind of have a, almost a backwards C-looking shape route where we just go way out of the way. And part of the reason we did that was to a- avoid Santa Fe and Albuquerque, these big, massive metropolitan areas, because it's just uh, we want to kind of keep that that vibe going the whole time where you're just pulling into towns that have one gas pump and, you know, a little tiny store and you see the old timers sitting on the bench out front just, you know, watching things go by. And that's for us, that's what it's really about. And as soon as you go into, you know, a five lane wide highway and interchanges, it just kind of ruins that feel. So uh, so we, we try and stay away from cities. Now, are they multi-day trips, single-day trips? How is it broken up? Almost every route is five to seven days. And uh, what we do is give the community a free GPS track that allows you to just follow in our footsteps. It's like a breadcrumb. You know, you just download it. And these days you can download it onto your iPhone using a, a River app or you can uh, get a GPS unit that handles tracks and you just follow that line and you go follow in our footsteps. And, uh, you know, we have uh, most of the routes are broken into sections or we'll have section one, section two, section three. And each section roughly represents a day. Uh, you can certainly do multiple sections in one day if you're riding fast and not stopping a lot. Uh, but that's that's the basic idea. And we we have the sections start and stop at gas stations essentially so that you can go from one gas station to the next up over the mountains, you know, through the, uh, the wild lands and, and come out of the next one. Now for camping, are they strategically set up for the day to be able to camp somewhere or is it different on each one? The camping is really one of the highlights of the BDRs and it's pretty uh, loose format. Most of the places we go in have what they call dispersed camping. And so this is uh, public lands, whether it's BLM or Forest Service, where you're just allowed to camp almost anywhere. Um, and there are also, of course, formal campgrounds that are along the way. But most of the time we camp in dispersed camping, which is just out there in the wild lands, camped on you know top of a 
cliff overlooking a river or we're camped in a meadow or camped alongside a creek. Um, certainly part of what we try and teach the community is to, is to just camp sensibly like right next to the road and to leave the campsites as you found them and to not, if there's a sensitive area, we'll, we'll leave the bikes parked on the road and set up our tents next to the road or something like that. But oftentimes where you're camping are places that a lot of other people have camped. Uh, there are a lot of deer and elk camps out there that are used in the fall, but in the summer they're just wide open, available, and they've already got the fire ring and they're close to water and that sort of thing. So that's most of what we do. We also design the routes intentionally so that you can stay in hotels along the way if you want to or if you need to. And on most of the BDR routes, at least one or two nights, we will end up staying in a hotel. Sometimes it's because we've had some mechanical difficulties or there was a, a problem and we're behind schedule and there, or, or it might just be really extreme weather where it's really raining and we don't feel like setting up our tents and camping out in the rain. Or uh, on the most recent route, we got uh, into some very cold weather and snow and we ended up getting hotels a couple of times just because it was in the 20s temperature-wise and uh, not everybody wanted to camp in that sort of weather. So that's one of the cool things about the BDR is they're set up where you, most of them you can stay in a hotel if you want. There are a few sections where uh, there aren't really hotels on certain days. You'd have to go a little bit out of your way, but it really can be done most of the time. So you've got the the GPS routes you can download for free. Are there any user fees? Uh so the GPS tracks absolutely are free. That's part of the mission of the BDR is that anybody can go out and do this on any motorcycle. It's got to have a license plate, you know, just uh, according to the state rules. But for us, it's it's free. It's open source. And, and that's how uh, we feel it should be. Now, there, there may be some costs from uh, the land managers. There are certain states where they require a pass to travel on public lands. Uh, sometimes it's like in Washington state, there's a discover pass in other states. There might be some local, um, access fees. They're typically, uh, not very expensive in the big scheme of things. Uh, in some places like when in the, on the Arizona BDR, when you travel through the Navajo nation, you have to stop and register with the, with the Indian reservation. And there are a couple of day use fees involved for that. But for the most part, it's pretty nominal. But if you go to the Backcountry Discovery Routes website and you go to the FAQ section for any of the states, um, we'll list out exactly what you need. In Washington State, there's a Discover Pass. I think it's $50 a year, something like that. You have to have that. I assume that when you're making these that you're probably making detours to get to spectacular spots. Yeah, you know, that's the the whole challenge for us is is how do you include as many of those spectacular spots or sort of the must-have um, places to visit, but at the same time, trying to keep the roads fun and interesting and, and high elevation and, and remote. Sometimes you'll have a great uh, destination you want to get to, but maybe there's a really wide, straight gravel road to get there and it's not very inspiring. And so that's, that's what our route development team has to, has to wrangle with to balance the fun factor roads versus the must have vistas or lookouts or uh, points of interest along the way. Uh, and then the other challenges are getting around wilderness areas. That's a big one. There are a lot of wilderness areas. And a wilderness area is a place where motorized vehicles are not allowed. There's other restrictions, but for us, that's the big one. Uh, there's also uh, military bases, uh, like in Nevada. You know, there's some huge military bases in, in New Mexico, huge military 
like bombing range sort of places where it's just enormous and you have to figure out how to get around that. Uh, Indian reservations, wilderness land. So that's really the challenge is to find the good stuff, figure out how to string it together, hit all the interesting places, avoid these no-go zones and, uh, and to put together a route. So it's funny how much work that actually is to take. There might be 10,000 possibilities and you have to kind of distill that down. And we usually, the first couple of passes, you know, maybe four or six months looking at maps and taping maps together and, and sketching some things out, doing some preliminary writing. And we usually find the stuff we want fairly quickly, but then the how to connect between a one good stretch and another good stretch, that's where the trouble lies. And that oftentimes takes us a year or more to, to ferret out every little possibility to figure out the best way to connect the good stuff. I've seen some of the photos that you have up. Uh, some of the areas are just incredible, and I, I assume that's what you've been going for the whole time. But um, some of the, I think there's a picture I just saw yesterday of a bike going through a stream in a, in a mountain area. I mean, the the landscape is stunning. It really is, and that's the cool thing about a BDR is that you will, I guarantee it, that you will discover things that you did not know existed, even if it's in your home state. Uh, when we did Washington, I, I would uh, bet you any amount of money at a bar that moose did not exist in the state of Washington. I was born and raised <laughs> here. I've I've been here my whole life, and I've never heard of anyone seeing a moose in Washington. Guess what we saw when we were riding the Washington BDR? We followed a moose down the road. It, it was a young one, but he was just sauntering down this road, and I, I just couldn't believe it, you know? I'd never seen a moose in Washington. But up in the northeast corner, there there actually are, are moose I would say that 80% of the places we went on the Washington route, I had never been my entire life. And so you just, even if, even in a state that you know, well, you, you see things that you didn't know existed and it's really amazing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really cool deal. And so that's for us, that's what's neat is getting to go to new States and discover all these new places, amazing vistas and sunsets and old timers and hearing stories. And you just, you learn about uh, America in a way that you just can't any other way because you go places that are just so far off the beaten path. Nobody goes there. When we were on the New Mexico BDR, we were riding along this old this road in the middle of nowhere, and some old guy, he must have been 85 years old, on a four-wheeler, he stopped. You know, wasn't wearing a helmet or anything. He stopped, and he saw us, and he just started laughing. And we were like, what's, what's so funny? He said, I haven't seen anyone else on this road in 10 years. Wow. And what, what he, you know, he'd probably seen locals and stuff, but he'd never seen anyone he didn't know on this road. And it just really shows you how uh, the, the, there's a lot of paths that are very lightly traveled out there. And it's just really special. If someone wants to go on a route, what's the, the first thing they need to do? Yeah, the first thing you should do if you want to go on a route is make sure that you've got the experience and the writing skills and that you've built up to it. Uh, we kind of tell people it's like climbing a mountain. You know, we've got Mount Rainier here near Seattle and a person doesn't just look at it and, and make that their first, uh, hike. It's something that you, you build up to, you do hiking, you take some mountaineering classes, you do some overnighters and you spend some time on glaciers and you slowly build up to a summit attempt of Mount Rainier. And a BDR is the same kind of thing where you, you shouldn't just go into the BMW dealership with a credit card and uh, purchase a motorcycle and then set out to do a eight-day ride in the backcountry. 
Uh, it definitely requires an equipment set and, and some knowledge on that, some basic uh, um, sort of like backpacking style skills where you're you're living off the bike, learning how to carry water or filter water and cook with smaller stoves and that sort of thing. Um, and, and there's also the off-road riding component of it. Uh, so you just you need to make sure that you have the skills or that you're uh, planning to acquire the skills and experience and then just start small you know do some day rides with groups uh, maybe work up to an overnighter with a couple of other folks we really recommend riding with other people on the bdr uh, it's just safer it's also just a heck of a lot more fun to be out there with people and you know part of the reason we we all like adventure riding is because you just don't know what's going to happen and every time you go out you come home with a, a story and there's oftentimes some sort of uh something goes wrong or there's a challenge or an obstacle or you lose somebody and those things are always um uh, best dealt with, with with a group you know we've all been out there by ourselves and had to change a tire and you don't have what you need and, and it just it's a pretty miserable experience so um that's how i would start and then certainly the the bdr um website has a lot of resources there's videos there's photos part of the reason we create that documentary is to give a new person an idea of what it's like out there to show them how we travel how we camp the sort of bikes we have how they're set up how we carry our gear um, we we oftentimes show when people bring too much gear to show the, the challenges of handling your bike when it weighs too much and, and things like that but it's really to show people what what um what it's all about, how to do it. Partially, it's to inspire them, to get them to to go out and try this. We think there are a lot of people, especially in the, in the United States, that are motorcyclists, but they just buy a Harley because that's what their neighbor has, and they ride around doing the Harley thing. But a lot of them have um, outdoor backgrounds where they're into rock climbing or river rafting or kayaking or something, and they've got that um, they've got that, that interest, you know, they like being outside and more of the adrenaline side of things. And that this is, is a much better fit for them than riding around with a group of Harleys. And so that's part of why we show people what's out there to inspire them so that if they do decide to get into motorcycle riding, that they, that they know that this is a, is an option and it's a heck of a lot of fun. Well, you mentioned that they should have the correct experience. Are the trails rated so you can look at it and say, okay, I can fit into this one, but I can't fit into that section. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we get we get a lot of questions about that. I, I do presentations at the BMW MRA rally and some of the international motorcycle shows, and I always get questions about degree of difficulty. And what I tell them is is this: on when we create the route, we always have a main route. Uh, sometimes we'll add in some additional loops or some alternates that are more difficult, and we'll label those as expert only even though sometimes they may not quite reach the level of expert only. We just want people to know, hey, that's a harder way to go. So only do it if you're real confident and you've got you know people with you to help overcome obstacles. Uh, and in other cases, the main route where it's maybe a, a little more difficult, we create an alternate easier route. And we call that out on the map or on the GPS tracks. We'll say, hey, there's an easier way. So if you're a guy who's struggling or your confidence isn't as high as the rest of the group, or maybe you've hit the ground a few times in the last day and you're just really interested in getting to where you can set up your tent and not challenging yourself, then you can take those easier options. So on any BDR, there's going to be at times some easier workarounds, main route, and sometimes some expert-only uh, optional loops. 
I get a lot of people asking, you know, why don't we uh, rate these things like a ski slope where you have a beginner, you've got interne- intermediate, and you've got advanced or expert terrain. And what I tell them is that um, the rating is really relative to the person's skill set and to the bike that they choose. Um, we have had people that uh, came up to me after a presentation and said, hey, I rode that uh, Utah route, and you guys you guys should have said that was expert only. I had, you know, I went out there and I almost killed myself. I burned out my clutch. And I was dropping my bike. It was it was a real disaster. And I say, okay, well, you know, what, what sort of bike were you on? Well, I, I went out and bought a, a BMW GS Adventure. It's like, okay, have you, have you ridden off-road before? No, not really. You know, I bought the bike to, to do the route. Okay. And the guy happened to be uh, a pretty small guy. I uh, didn't weigh a lot. And so he, he was relatively small, had no real off-road experience, and he had a 600-pound uh, adventure bike. And, and there's a lot of sand in Utah, and the sand ended up kind of doing his bike in. And so what I tell him is that guy, if he was on a 650 single with his skill set, um, he probably would have had a lot better experience. And if he had gone and done some off-road training, uh, maybe gone to a rawhide class or Jimmy Lewis training school or the BMW Off-Road Academy on the East Coast, and then maybe did a few overnighters and really built up his off-road riding skill set and had a bike that was a good choice for him, it it may not have uh, he may not have had had the experience that he had. I think things would have went a lot better. So that's what I tell people is. Uh, it's really the, the degree of difficulty is relative to your riding experience, but also the, the bike that you choose. Um, I, you know, I'm a decent rider. I like the bigger bikes because I think that they carry the load better. So I enjoy, you know, an 800 CC, 1000 CC, 1200. I've done it on all of them and it's a lot of fun. It carries the weight really well. I've also ridden re- really much smaller bikes, but I feel that the, the load that I put on them, it causes the bike to really handle poorly. Yes, it does weigh less, but I just feel like it doesn't carry the load well. So on Nevada, we were lucky enough to have Johnny Campbell with us, and he and I were both on Africa Twin motorcycles, and we were talking about how balanced the bike was and how how good it was handling and stuff. And he said, you know, a lot of people forget about the foundation, you know. The, 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 the bike is the foundation, and if you're carrying a certain amount of gear on a heavier foundation, it's just going to handle a lot better than if you put that same load on a much lighter bike, like a 690 or something like that. So um, I, really, uh, I really kind of favor the, the larger bikes for me. Uh, that being said, some people can pack much lighter than me. I tend to pack you know, a lot of stuff. Not as much as some people, but uh, there are some real minimalist guys that can do it on 250s, and and they're happy. Just really depends on on you, how much gear you're bringing, and and sort of your ride style. One of the things with this sort of uh, tourism, if you call it that, when we're traveling through places, is, is it does bring a lot of money to places. And because you guys have set up these routes in places that are sort of away from major centers, that probably funnels a lot of cash to places that would otherwise not see it. It really does. And, and for us as, as a nonprofit that's trying to protect these riding areas, something we discovered in the last few years is that the, the best way to protect our access to these areas is to create economic stimulus for these small towns and communities. Um, for, for us, we, there are certain places we can no longer reasonably access on an adventure bike because the gas stations have closed and the stores have closed and we just don't have the fuel range to get there. And so we're real serious about protecting these gas stations and stores. Uh, We also have found that 
as we create routes, we send enough riders and enough money through these small towns that it really helps them um, keep the doors open. A lot of these small towns have lost industry from mining or logging, and they're just they're shutting down. Their schools are closing, the stores are going away, and so if we can get there and establish routes before that happens, it gives them enough money to keep these stores open, and it'll deliver. Uh, we've estimated that estimated that it will deliver as much as a million dollars into some of these communities in the first year. And so uh, this year we've had uh, the state of Nevada actually uh, write a grant to help us make that route possible because they really believe firmly that there's a lot of great things to discover in rural Nevada and they're helping us uh, create the route to do that. But for every store and small community that we impact, they will stand up and fight for the access issues. When they're trying to close a section and make a BDR route go away, the people that live in that town will stand up and fight for it to keep that open because it's their livelihood. And a lot of these land managers have part of their charter is to provide um, uh, economic resources, uh, e uh, viable economics for these small towns. And so this is a way to do it. BDR really delivers the goods there. And we think that's the best way to keep access open. So something to think about when you're planning your route, if you're going to do a route, is to consider shopping local rather than stocking up at the, the big city before you leave. Try and do your shopping local as you go through these places. And also, I mean, I guess also be a bit of an ambassador really for, for adventure motorcyclists. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, uh, Traveling on a motorcycle makes it easy to have to shop locally because you just simply can't carry all the water and the fuel that you need for the week-long trip. So you end up just having to to shop locally, which is is really great. And uh, yeah, be a good steward for our sport and uh, be cool to the store owners. A lot of these store owners actually put BDR stickers on their windows that say the store is supported by you know BDR or we support BDR riders and that they're really into it. They love seeing the motorcycles. It's a it's a livelihood for them. And we're seeing a lot of new businesses pop up in these states, whether it's renting motorcycles or um, running tours or just new stores that uh, that pop open or stay open. It really makes a difference to these small communities. It's great, the work that you and all the other volunteers are doing to put something like this together, to put it out there for everyone to use for free. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic to see this sort of thing. Yeah, it's really cool. And there are a lot of people behind the scenes doing the work on it. We've got, uh, you know, Ina Thorne, who's the, the director of operations for the nonprofit. And then we have whole host of other volunteers and ambassadors and folks that really put in a ton of time and effort, in some cases their own money, paying their own expenses. But it really is uh, community-driven, and we've got a lot of great people and then a lot of good companies behind it. If, uh, if a listener is out there and thinking about becoming involved, there's a couple of ways you can become involved. We do a fundraiser ride every spring. It's usually in a different southwest state. Um, this this year it's going to be in Nevada, but we put on a fundraiser ride where you can come out, um, ride motorcycles with us. We have some roundtable discussions where we talk about the future and take community feedback and sort of um, plot the course for the nonprofit for the for the future years, including which states we're going to tackle next. And then there's also a membership program we have where people can join as a member at the hundred dollar, two fifty or five hundred dollar level. And the different levels, there's all kinds of benefits, discount cards, coupons, there's uh, uh, sh sort of a swag basket 
that, that goes at, at each level. At the higher levels, your name goes in the film and your name goes on the map and things like that. So there's a lot of ways for, for folks to get involved and help the BDR continue doing the great work that it's doing. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you. Appreciate the time. And that was Paul Gillian, board president of the BDR, the Backcountry Discovery Routes. And one thing that Paul mentioned to me when we were talking that I want to throw in here as well is that they're now advocating for people to remember to ride on the right because there have been, I guess, some incidents where people have had collisions by coming around corners and not being aware that somebody else is coming in the opposite direction. So remember, stay right, watch your speed, keep a cool head out there. Well, in just a minute, we're going to talk with Ted Johnson from the TCAT, which is a trail in Canada that goes from one coast to the other. But before we do, I want to talk a minute about AeroStitch. In my mind, getting the right fit for your riding jacket and pants makes all the difference. And AeroStitch makes really high quality gear, but that's not all. They make their gear with the attention to detail of a craftsman. Producing in more than, I think it's 42 sizes. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's 60 size. I don't know. It's a lot of sizes. It's more, like, it's more like buying a suit than it is a typical motorcycle jacket. Now, why? Because that's how you get a great fit. You know, when you go in for a suit, they size you. They fit that suit to you if you get a quality suit, not an off-the-rack suit. So, because we're all different sizes. We have our own needs and wants, etc. And, and AeroStitch makes their business on getting you fitted correctly. And they have a lot of options as well. So you can customize your jacket to fit you. You can have it sewn for you. You can even change the thread color, which is pretty cool. Now, I have a lot of miles on my AeroStitch suit. And every time I put it on, I can't help but think how much I like it. Aside from the fit of the jacket and pants, which I think they fit extremely well... Details like the short zippers on the cuffs, the collar that folds down and is held down by magnets when I'm not using it. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Now make sure you use the forward slash ARR because that's going to get you 10% off your order or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping on your next order. And please, when you're dealing with them, anytime you're talking with anybody from Aerostitch, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Canada is a large and diverse country, from Newfoundland in the east to Vancouver Island in the west. The terrain you will encounter as you cross the country goes from marine to hardwood forest to prairies to mountains and then back to sea as you get over to the Pacific Ocean. It's over 9,000 kilometers at its widest. That's like 57, over 5,700 miles. And most of it's wilderness. So when you ride a route that starts at the Atlantic Ocean and then you cross all the way over Canada to the Pacific Ocean, you have a very long trek. Not only a long trek, but you're going to see a lot of different types of terrain. You're going to have to be prepared for a lot of things. And for adventure motorcyclists, we have a route. The route's called the Trans-Canada Adventure Trail, or TCAT. The Trans-Canada Adventure Trail is the work of a small group of dedicated backroad explorers who have developed a GPS track right across the country, and they maintain it. They make the changes as roads disappear or have problems that they have to go around. They're doing this every year. So to find out what it's all about, we're going to talk to the guy behind it all, the guy that made it happen, and also the guy that answers the emails and sends out the tracks to those adventurers willing to tackle the trail. It's Ted Johnson from Ontario, Canada. Johnson. I live in Ottawa and I run a website called Gravel Travel Canada. And 
our flagship route that we distribute GPS files for is called the Trans-Canada Adventure Trail. Ted, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great to be here. Can you tell us what is the TCAT? Uh, it's a GPS route for backcountry travel that crosses Canada from the east coast to the west coast. And it's about 15,000 kilometers in length. It takes most people about two months to do it. Albeit probably the more popular thing is people do it province by province over a couple of years. So this is the Trans-Canada Adventure Trail, so covering the, as you said, the, the entire width of Canada. So it starts in the east, I guess. That's, is that the official starting point? Yeah, it starts on the east coast of Newfoundland, which is the most easterly point in North America. Uh, crosses Newfoundland, kind of using some roads and an old rail trail, and cuts up through Labrador, and kind of crosses most of the remote northern part of Quebec. And then dips down south to the American border and heads back north through Ontario. And then kind of heads up in the northern Manitoba and northern Saskatchewan before heading south again into Alberta and across BC and across the ferry to Vancouver Island. And then kind of heads up north to uh, the remote beach up on the northwest coast of Vancouver Island where it terminates. What are we looking at here? Are we looking at a, a trail uh, that's marked and, and uh, has signage the whole way? Or are we talking about, uh, you mentioned GPS route, are we talking about a trail mixed with roads? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a trail mixed with roads. I would say like maybe 10% of it's paved roads. So that's just sort of the nature of the beast of getting across the country. And the remainder of it's a mix of trails and dirt roads. 10% isn't much. No, I mean, we try to avoid them as much as possible, but there's, I mean, you have to bring people into towns. You can't stay remote for that long. You need to get gas and that. So right. it kind of weaves its way through the back country and then hits a town for people to stock up on food and fuel. And Exactly. How do you make a 15,000 kilometer trail? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> it took years. It took years to do. Um, like, did you do it all yourself? Seven. No, there was seven of us involved in the project. So one fellow did Vancouver Island, another fellow did BC, one did Saskatchewan and Alberta. Uh, myself, I did Western Quebec and most of Ontario. And kind of we all collaborated on it. I, I guess I'd be the project manager more than anything. And we put it together over thousands and thousands of emails, trying to keep it consistent in difficulty levels and remoteness. So we kind of tried to make it so... You know, a 650 to 1,000 cc motorbike would be able to pull it off just because not everyone wants to drive 15,000 kilometers on a little 250 cc bike. <laughs> and we also had trucks on mine when we did it, so we tried to make it capable for, again, overland expedition style of a truck. And I think it's pretty good. You know, we change it up every year. We, do, we don't charge for the GPS files. They're free off the website. And we just ask people in turn when they do it to if they notice a bridge closed or a washout or a gate on a road or something to let us know. And uh, it's kind of in that manner that we keep the GPS files updated. Cause I, I mean, I have a full-time job. I'm not out there driving, riding it every summer. So it's, so it's been staying pretty current, I think, for the most part. So it's set up for bikes and 4x4s? It is. I mean, bikes was definitely what we had in mind when we did it. But there's been quite a bit of interest from the, we call them the overland community. So when we built it, we kind of had it tucked in the back of our head to at least make note if it was too narrow for a truck to get through so they could find a way to get around. 
I, probably I would say 95% of it's doable on a trip. And so what can people expect with the, with the trail? If they're thinking, if they're considering going across the whole thing, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge uh, ordeal, but what can they expect as far as riding conditions? Well, I mean, there's a small window of time when you leave the East coast in order to, you have to wait for the snow in Labrador to melt. So usually you're looking late May, early June. Um, and you have to get across the mountains in BC usually by mid September. So there's a kind of a two month window where you almost dictated when you have to leave. If you want to do the whole thing, most people are leaving around the first of June from Newfoundland and just getting to Newfoundland for most people is quite a challenge, especially if they're from overseas. So to do the whole thing, you know, it's a real, it takes a lot of planning. That's why I call it an expedition. It's not just a week out with your buddies on a great trip. I mean, you're going to burn through three back tires, three or four oil changes, Inevitably, you're going to have repairs needed along the way. As far as terrain goes, I would say a lot of it or most of it's just bombing down kind of remote dirt roads. Um, there are some trails here and there to kind of keep it interesting. But probably the, the, I mean, I get the question all the time, how hard is it? You know, if it's dry, most of it's pretty easy. If it's, you get caught out in the pouring rain for a week or two, things get pretty challenging pretty quick. I know in the prairies, I mean, it just turns to grease some of that some of that train when it rains. It's almost impossible. In Ontario, Quebec, you can get pretty high water levels through some of the old jeep trails through the forest and stuff. The water crossings are a reality. And the odds of doing the whole thing and not getting caught out in the rain for a week or two is almost zilch. <laughs> sort, of, sort of comes into play. I guess yeah. the hardest part is just to keep the motivation, to keep wanting to do it, not give up. Because you're sort of you're sort of working every day, aren't you? I mean, through most of it, maybe maybe not the prairies. If you hit it dry, I mean, it's going to be pretty much a straight ride. But I mean, going through Ontario and Quebec and Labrador, you're going to be working every day. Oh, no question, no question. And so, I mean, there's multiple sections in Quebec that are over 400 kilometers between gas, and that gas might just be at a little outfitters camp in the middle of nowhere. So you really want to. I mean, you have to ride accordingly. You want to be pretty careful. It would be horrible to have an accident out there. And driving back-to-back days for 60 or 70 days in a row, you're not going to be flat out. So it's a pretty conservative kind of a ride. And I guess you hit a lot of sand in Quebec, which makes it pretty dangerous in some regards. And other than the the track on your screen that you're following, you really have nothing. You're looking at waypoints on the screen. There's nothing, like there's no signs nailed up anywhere. No. Well, in Quebec, they'd be in French too. <laughs> I mean, you know, but a lot of it, you know, you're going to, it goes through a couple of big cities like Ottawa and Thunder Bay and goes right into Vancouver where it catches the ferry. So the whole thing isn't remote. There's just days here and there. And most of the folks that I've seen do the trip, because I generally help them plan it, you know, if they're pretty serious about doing the whole thing, they'll get paper maps of each province or the country and kind of trace, at least a rough trace of the route kind of mark the fuel stops on it just so at night they have an idea where they are because you're going to be in a forest for you know, at least a month and it kind of gets a little disconcerting just staring at that small line on the screen mm-hmm. you kind of lose scope of maybe where you are if, even if you had an emergency and stuff like that so most of them put together some sort of paper map thing with a bunch of details written on it and they they prearrange where they're going to do oil changes and tire changes and have stuff shipped to different locations and like I say, not everybody does the whole the whole route. Probably there's certain sections of it that are pretty popular to do in a week trip and whatnot. There's a small group of people that have been doing it province by province, and a bunch of them are going to finish the route this year. 
Are there some things that you think people should be considering if they're looking at doing the trail? Are there, are there some requirements that you would put out right away when somebody emails you about it? Yeah, I, I get asked the same questions all the time. Um, do I need knobby tires? Yeah, 100%. It doesn't take much for some of the some of the train. They become real slick if it's wet. Um, better safe than sorry. You know, people are concerned about tire changes. Um, I, I have a list of places that are pretty friendly to, to folks on motorbikes where the, for a couple of bucks you can ship them near tires and oil filters and whatnot. Other than that, a lot of people ask me if they should do it by themselves. Um, you know, people have done it. There's a you know, guy from Australia bombed the whole thing by himself one summer on that 990. Me, personally, I wouldn't go by myself just in case you had a slip on the bike or something and you're at the middle of nowhere, just for a safety perspective. And I think I'd find it terribly lonely being by myself for two or three months, you know, without anyone to talk to. But sure, those are probably the big questions that I get almost every time from folks. So if somebody wants to run the TCAT, what do they do? Well, they jump on the website. I always ask them, you know, read read the, I think there's a bit of 20-page description of the route. Get, give that a read. At least you'll have an idea whether it's something that you want to do. It gives a good idea of the train. There's lots of photos. And shoot me an email. It's, there's links on the website, and I'll send them the GPS files. For most of the people that actually do want to do a large portion of the route, usually I end up doing a bunch of back-and-forth emails with them because the whole planning of it's a, a big thing, and especially for people from other countries. Well, Ted, great information. Thanks very much. Yeah, no problem. Have a great day. And that was Ted Johnson from his home in Ontario, Canada. And you can find out more about the TCAT, the Trans-Canada Adventure Trail, at www.graveltravel.ca. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. IMS Products has a complete line of foot pegs for us adventure riders. Now, if you're standing on stock pegs, I have to tell you, these IMS pegs will definitely bring a smile to your face. You'll instantly feel that you have a better control of your bike. It's a wider platform to stand on, and it maintains the original distance between your pegs and your shifter and your brake lever, and that's really important. You're also going to be standing on pegs that are made of CAST-certified 17-4 stainless steel that's heat-treated and made in the USA. Now, honestly, I think you can't go wrong with these pegs because they're guaranteed for life. There's not a lot of products out there with a guarantee for life. www.imsproducts.com. Trip by their website. Give them a call. Listen to what they have to say. And don't forget, when you're doing it, mention Adventure Rider Radio when you talk with them. Now, Tour USA is a motorcycle rental company based near Seattle, Washington. They're connected with PSSOR. They're a great launching point for any trip. Now, it's funny we mentioned this because we've just been talking about the TCAT and the backcountry discovery routes. This is a perfect way to do it. If you're coming from another place, maybe the other side of the country, maybe another country, you can fly in to Tour USA Motorcycle Rentals and Tours. You can grab a bike from them and then go do your ride and then come back. It's, it's a really neat way to have a vacation. It's www.tourusa.us. That should be an easy one to remember, the .us extension there. But they've got, um, all the bikes are set up with protection for adventure travel. So these people are adventure motorcyclists. They know what you're expecting. And they've got Pelican panniers on it, the whole bit. Drop by their website, check out what they've got, and do it early. Because if you plan on doing it this year, it's going to be a busy summer, I'm sure. So make sure you plan and book early. And make sure when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here from Adventure Rider Radio.
Brett Tax, instructor at PSSOR, and our, of course, our own Rider Skills segments here on Adventure Rider Radio, has been on a hiatus for some time. You may have noticed that we haven't been doing our rider skills lately. Well, that's because Brett has been on his own motorcycle adventure in Africa. And now, nearing the end of his trip, we finally have connected with him on the side of a dusty road leaning against his motorcycle in Mozambique, Africa. Brett, great to get you back on, and where are you now? Uh, I'm in um, Mozambique and uh, in Maputo and just getting ready to return back to the States here uh, next week. So what have you been on here? What, what is the trip? So I, I decided to ride West Africa this year. So I flew into Spain. I rode down the West Coast. Most people do the East Side and got down to South Africa, still had time. So I did all the Southern Tip up into Zimbabwe and Botswana. I'm now out on the beach, uh, or was out on the beach in Mozambique, did some diving, and now I'm inland and, and just getting uh, the bike ready to pass on to the next owner and get back to the States and, and try to earn some money so I can do my next trip. So what's your impression of Africa as a whole for, an, for another rider who might be considering going? It, you, you've got to be nuts to even consider it, but oh, wow, what an experience. I mean, it is if you want the ultimate adventure ride. Africa is it. I mean, South America was amazing, you know, culturally. Uh, Europe is a lot of fun historically. Africa is pure adventure, uh, especially on the West Coast. There's there's no tourists that come down here. And as an American, holy, as soon as they found out I was American, I, I was called into uh, officials. They, they would leave the Spanish outside. I was traveling with some Spanish early on and one that went the whole trip with me. And they, they would call in the American. They wanted to see what I looked like. I mean, we just, we're not out there. So what have you learned on this trip? Like, oh, well, let me say, you're saying, you know, it's really spectacular or it's really something to do. You got to be sort of crazy to do it. What is it about the uh, Africa that makes it the real adventure? I mean, it's sort of an obvious question, I guess, to a lot of people, but what is it about it? So, uh, you, you know, we do the writer skills stuff. And my perspective on this, we always talk about riding off-road and in the dirt. And, and when we, you and I were first talking about chatting again, I was like, oh, man, we should talk about Congo. Because everybody, those are kind of the crazy countries with all the mud and the slime. And if it rains, you're just done. You're not going anywhere. And as I contemplated it, the cities are I, some of the most extreme off-roading I've ever done. Adventure riding has been inside the cities. How is that? Well, there. I'll be riding through in Nigeria was a great one for this because you'd be riding along on the highways and there's a couple of things that are very unique. First of all, you have to pay attention. Believe me, nobody's on a cell phone because you'll be riding along and the highway disappears and you'll end up with this huge, massive mud trenched, you know, truck swallowing holes and then the highway reappears. And then out of no place, you'll end up with this crater where somebody dropped a 500 pound bomb on the road and if you're not paying attention, you disappear. So you're paying attention. But that was the good writing. When you get to the cities, it all falls apart. The roads disappear. There's garbage everywhere. There's, there's deep car-swallowing holes of water. And this is main city roads. Wow. You're not painting In, a pretty picture. You're not painting a oh, tourist picture. Oh, <laughs> I did mention that, that there weren't many tourists, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, I had my picture taken by more people just because I was white. 
than anything else. Because in, in West Africa, and, and it's not a phrase I come up with, this phrase they use, they call it Black Africa. So we hit Mauritania, that's kind of when you see uh, North Africa, which is Morocco and all that. And then when you get farther south, Namibia, South Africa, you see a lot more influence with the Germans, the English, and so there's a lot more mix. Um, but in West Africa, in the Congos, in Nigeria, in Togo, in Mali, you don't see a white face. There, there's none. And if they are, they're contractors. But we didn't see any. So we're quite the novelty, you know, to say the least. So when with driving all these roads, what tips do you have for anybody who's heading to Africa? <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. Light is right. The idea of bringing a huge bike complex with all kinds of computers on it, of course it can be done. We had riders ahead of us and behind us doing some of that. But having the light bikes was... Um, it was such an advantage. You know, we were on some older Yamaha XT 600s. Uh, for those in this area, it's a lot like a Suzuki DR650. Carbureted, air-cooled, no radiators, no computers, as simple as they get and narrow. And being able to move through traffic and to ride up on sidewalks and on curbs and over things was a huge huge advantage for us where we weren't just locked in and overheated because sometimes you couldn't move at all. And some of the terrain we rode over in the cities was extreme to say the least. Well, when you're in the city traffic, you got to be really careful. I imagine. I mean, if you go down in that, that's that's the last place you want to go down in. Yeah, there, there is no medical, you know, being injured. And this is where, you know, and I stress this when we do the, the training stuff and, and you and I do the riders, you know, skill segments, but the having the skill set so that you are not at your edge is so important. And, you know, when I did, you know, last uh, couple years ago or a year ago, when I rode down through South America and you get in some of the, the cities in Peru or Cusco or, or some of these cities down in Lima, the, the traffic is insane and you have to move through it. And you have to be very, very attentive. But Africa has an extra element. Not only is it is it you know this this crazy congested you know traffic, these completely dilapidated vehicles where wheels are literally falling off them, buses are in the in dead in the middle of the road with vines growing over them, and the motors laying out in the road because they never moved it and they never fixed it. And this is common. But the added element for Africa, especially in the cities, is. The conditions of the road itself, you're going through this thick mud or this slurry of trash and garbage and waste product. This is not where you want to fall down. And for me, there were times where there's one particular incident that that really sticks out in my mind. And we came up, if you don't mind me just telling a quick story, we we came up into the city. We were um, on a road. It was a one way on our side and there was an island to our left. And the island was maybe two to three lanes wide, but it was an elevated island and it was maybe 24 to 30 inches high on the curb, but not an insignificant curb. People don't drive over the curb. But in front of us, the water depth was probably a meter deep, Hmm. which on a bike is, (laughs) it can swallow some bikes. Now we could get up along the edges and we could stay not as deep in the water, but not only is, are we looking at this slurry of mud and filth that that's, you know, up to a meter deep, the big trucks could get through, but the cars weren't, but it was jam packed with vehicles. So now you're trying to go through this with limited traction 
on your bike with all this traffic around you. And I looked at it. I just went, you know, I'm thinking, no, <laughs> this, is, this is just a really bad idea. And, you know, Miguel is the, the Spanner is, you know, my basically my mentor for traveling the world. This guy's amazing. And I could tell stories about him all day long, but he's trying to figure out how to jimmy his way through this. And I looked to my left at this and I just went, you know what? I think I'm going to go over the curb instead. I teed up on the curb and, and because we had light bikes, because I wouldn't be doing this on a 1200 GS, I turned sideways, lofted the front wheel up on top of this curb and, and rode up onto this curb, which, you know, 24 to 30 inches is significant. And, and it was quite the ride <laughs> going up. We're loaded. You know, we've got everything we own on these bikes, which, again, light makes right. And I rode across the other side where there was no mud and just went on the oncoming traffic side, and which isn't uncommon either popped off the curb on the other side and it was perfectly fine. It was, it was far safer to do that. But how many riders leave thinking, oh, I need to be able to clear a 24, 30 hard edge, you know, curb. They don't. Mm-hmm. Completely different environment. We just did an episode on uh, dealing with getting back on the bike after a crash. You may not have heard it because you're in Africa right now and traveling, but um, where we talked about that and Liz Jansen was on and, and she was talking about, you know, knowing your limits and she's a bike riding instructor and she was talking about knowing your limits, like getting to the point where you say or knowing where you're into a situation where, you know, that's not right. I don't want to do that. And that's exactly what you're describing there. I, mean, I think that's, it's some, it's interesting for someone with your skill level to look at something like that and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, and the option is to back up and try to find a way around it, which there isn't always one, or to wait it out. There's options. But mm. it sure was nice to be able to just go, you know, it's safer for me to go over this this curb obstacle because that's the only danger than to have these unpredictables. You know, what's under the surface mm. and all the other vehicles. And if you get hurt, this is not the place to get hurt. When you but mentioned a minute a great ago about point. riding to the edge, you're, what you're talking about is your skill level. In other words, if you're riding to your maximum skill level, then you're going to run into trouble. You've got no reserve. Well, you just have, if anything doesn't go as planned, it can end really poorly. So yeah, you, you always want to have the extra reserve. And that's a great point that your other speaker was talking about. It, when I, I, and I may have shared this story with you in the past, but we went over a road in Colombia, you know, when we were down in South America. And as we came up, it was on a mountainside. Well, the road slid away. There was no going around and they were hand shoveling a path over this. And it was about a single path, you know, walking path width. And we ended up riding the bikes, or I ended up riding uh, Christina's bike and my bike over, and then Miguel rode his over. But when I looked at that, and I had to walk up to the hill and really assess, okay, what's the traction surface like? How difficult is it? I moved any rocks I needed and go, okay, I can do this, not a problem. But if I had any hesitation whatsoever, that was not the place to find out. I think I can do it. No, 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 you had to know you could do it. And Africa was a, was just a, a whole new level of that because the the chaos going around it and the room for air was so much. Um, uh, there just wasn't there just wasn't as much to to work with. You really had to be skilled and really attentive. What really sticks in your mind so far about your trip that makes it spectacular? You know. I, I, you know, my I, although I love the riding and the challenge, I, I practice at home so that when I'm on the road, it, it's fun. But that's not really what my big takeaway is. I love the culture. I love the people. And that's what I travel for. Uh, I want to see things different. And the things that stand out are when we had delays. You know, we got stuck in, in uh, Mali, in the capital of Mali. 
you know, horribly polluted town. We were there for a week. But we had that forced us to explore the town, to meet people, to get comfortable in the environment. We did the same thing in Nigeria. We got stuck in, in uh, Nigeria for a week waiting for a, a visa because of the holidays. I ended up spending a week in Congo in one place in the Congos. Uh, again, waiting for visas because of the holidays. It was a one day to get the visa. It was for Cameroon. But they were all on holidays. Nobody was there to give us a stamp. And when you do that, you're kind of forced to become more comfortable. And I meet people and you have conversations with people and you develop relationships with people. And that's when you really learn about what their life is about. And my gosh, does it make you humble? You know, when you come home and you see people angry and upset about first world issues. Have you been accepted everywhere? Is that the sort of what you find? More so than I would have expected. Uh, Morocco was, there, there are more tourism in the area. So you're, you're kind of saw, seen as a tourist. So people come up and try to sell things. But the deeper we got into the less traveled areas, Mali, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, Congo, you know, it was amazing because people didn't expect to see us there. And they were as interested in us as we were in them. The other thing you notice, and you hear this about uh, Africa, especially South Africa, where there's a lot of divide between white and black. And for many people, they don't know what the apartheid is, but it was, it was a law that the whites and blacks could not mix. And that didn't end until 1993 in, in South Africa and then many of the countries around it in the same time frame. So that's not that long ago. So you still feel a lot of resentment when you go down into Africa – uh, Zimbabwe and, and stuff. You can feel that on the streets, not for everybody. But up in the Congos, up in Nigeria, there were no white people. And you don't feel that that same level of, of resentment. People were just more interested in you. And I was invited into people's homes. I was invited to meet their mothers. I went on, we had, <laughs> sorry, I, I know I'm, I'm dominating the talk here, but my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> so I was, in, I was in Nigeria and like I said, we were stuck for a week. And it was, we were lucky because we were there for Christmas. So they had what they call carnival and carnival is basically the big festival where they take over the city and they have, you know, parades and people and all this stuff going on. And one day it was biker day. And so all the bikers come in, which are all rich people or those with money, not rich people, like a bunch of whites, like we have, but if you can afford a bike, you've got money in the area. And so all the people with the machine guns were there to protect them, not <laughs> keep the crowds away type of thing. But one of the locals wanted to ride. So he jumped on the back of the bike and I, I was invited to go meet the, the, you know, the person in charge of the region and to come to the tour, you know, the, the division of tourism, which they actually have there. I never went there. They offered to give me a free hotel for the night just to come ride with the bikes. And this, this kid jumped on the back of the bike and we rode the carnival together. He rode on the back and I stood up and we had all kinds of fun until we got tired of the whole thing. And, and then I left and he invited me to, to meet his, his family and his mother. And I mean, those are some incredible experiences that you just can't um, replicate without being stuck somewhere and being open-minded. But they want to meet you. They want to see what's going on. They're very excited. And I really... The world is a pretty cool place. It really, really is. What has Africa taught you that you didn't know before about travel? What has it taught me new? Well, if anything, it has reiterated that even though I pack light, 
in 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 South America, I, I packed maybe half of what I saw the people packing. Everything fit in my painters. I had no extra bags on the bike or anything else. This trip, I packed even less. And to give an example of how this worked, I, I used the soft bags that walk onto the bike, which are wonderfully convenient. And they're 35 liters on either side. And so I had two 35-liter bags and a 40-liter you know, backpack. When I came back onto the plane, I checked the two side bags as my carry-on luggage. I had all my riding gear inside those side bags, along with all my regular, uh, all my regular supplies. And I carried the backpack onto the plane. I only had my electronics and a change of clothes and my toothbrush. And the bag was not full. So if I have learned anything, it's light and simple. You know, keep the bike simple, um, keep the gear light, and what a what an enjoyable experience to do that. You're you're just not dealing with as much weight in the mud. You're not trying to pick things up. You're you have less equipment, things to worry about, and all the extra space that I had normally was extra water, food, things like that that I carry along with me when we were traveling. So, Brad, how much time do you have left now before you head back to the states? Uh, it depends on whether we sell the bikes or whether he buys them, uh, maybe as early as next week. I'm, I'm committed to some talks in Spokane, Washington, and that's in, in three weeks. So anywhere so between close. next week, yeah, next week to three weeks, I'm, uh, it's time to come back and, you know, we have adventure camps coming up. We have the tours coming up, you know, I, I'm working with tour USA and some of their adventure tours, so, you know, it's time to come back and, and act like an adult and be responsible. And I really don't want to. That's what I was going to say. It's, How's it feel yeah. now to know that you've yeah. got to go back and do that? Yeah. Could you keep yeah, going way, at this point? If, you, if things were wide open, could you keep going? Absolutely. Yeah, the bike, even with the bike's condition and the issues, I, I, we could keep going north. Money has not been an issue. I've been spending, I, of course, I use U.S. dollars when I travel. And so far, I, I haven't done the final numbers, but I'm running under 2000 a month. And that's, that's including the borders and visas, fuel, food. I mean, that's everything. Um, so, you know, the, the trip has been very good for, for staying on budget and, you know, in general, 3000 a month, if you're on the move is a doable number. And so, but that also adds an airfare, the bike and everything else. And I think when I'm done, I'll probably end up around that number because it's a fairly short trip. Uh, you know, I'll be under four, just under four months, um, but no, I would keep going north. I, I, I absolutely, I would turn north and go up, up the East Coast, and and I could probably make it all the way up to Egypt in in a month, no problem. I don't have the visas lined up, but if I wanted to, I could I could make that happen. But it's time to be responsible and come back. Brett, great to catch up, and uh, I'll talk to you when you're in the states. Yeah, see you in a couple of weeks, or talk to you in a couple of weeks. And of course, that was Brett Tax just finishing up his trip in Africa. And uh, you'll hear again from Brett as we do our next Rider Skills segment, which should be coming up soon with him heading back to the States. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. 
Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, the listener. We really appreciate you listening. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you want to help out the show, we can certainly use it. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a free sticker, and anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show. Now, speaking of the Raw show, we have another show, if you don't know it. It's ARR Raw. Go by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And uh, click on the Raw Show. It's a completely different show. It's it's still motorcycles. It's motorcycle travel. It's a roundtable talk. We've got uh, co-hosts on there. Check it out. All free again. You can download it and uh, and enjoy. Well, I guess there's no excuses now. You may as well get on your bike and get out there and go for a ride. It sounds like there's a lot of other people doing it, so we may as well do it. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, tomorrow morning, because it's kind of late right now. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. I'm Woody from Woody's Wheelworks, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.